It's unbelievable that people paying millions of dollars for a piece of art don't ask for like a title search. Like nobody would buy a house without doing an insurance title search, but people agree to buy a half of a painting that's like in a Freeport that they've never seen. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Last month, much of the art industry was transfixed on the goings-on in a courtroom in downtown Manhattan, where the Russian businessman Dmitry Rybolovlev and a group of Sotheby's auction house representatives were taking turns on the witness stand. The matter at issue was artworks that Rybolovlev had purchased via the Swiss art dealer Yves Bouvier. The Russian accused Sotheby's of conspiring with Bouvier and defrauding him out of tens of millions of dollars in art sales, and Sotheby's denied any wrongdoing. The works in question are masterpieces, not least of which was Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi. That work later made headlines for a totally different reason, when Rabalovilev sold it at Christie's for $450 million in 2017. Rabalovilev ended up losing his case against the auction house last month, and the verdict is likely the last gasp in a high-profile art fraud dispute that has traveled to courtrooms all over the world over the last years. And the Sotheby's trial this January was just part of a wider story that actually tracks back to a time before 2014, when the Russian businessman spent around $2 billion acquiring a world-class art collection of art by the likes of Paul Gauguin, Pablo Picasso, and Henry Matisse. His right-hand man in getting these works was Bouvier. Their relationship soured, though, when Rybolovlev discovered that Bouvier was marking up prices. In some cases, Bouvier would speak with Sotheby's to get works valuated. After years of litigation and court actions, the two men eventually settled out of court in December 2023. While the details of their settlement are fully confidential, the proceedings with Sotheby's in January have shed light on the secretive world of art business dealings. My colleague Eileen Kinsella has been following this dispute for years, since the very beginning. She watched the trial in person last month. So, Eileen, I'm really excited to talk to you today about this long, ongoing, multi-chapter saga. Mm -hmm. But first, and most recently, you spent a lot of time in a New York courthouse this January. Who was in the courtroom and what was at issue? Yeah, so it was a uh, major trial in federal court in downtown Manhattan. And it had been a long time coming. It's the Russian billionaire and art collector, Dmitry Rabalovlev. He claims that he was defrauded on a number of very high-profile art deals, and he brought Sotheby's to the table. He actually tried to hold them accountable for their role as a broker in some of the deals. They weren't the main seller, but they were involved in some of the deals, and he felt that he had been told bad information, and he tried to hold them accountable. The charge that he had was aiding and abetting fraud. Right. And so this court case, which took place over several weeks in January, the final verdict came out at the end of January. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. In a weird way, it felt kind of anticlimactic because it was such a high stakes trial and he was seeking $190 million. And after roughly three weeks of testimony and arguments, the jury came back saying no to all charges. The question that they were asked to determine was, did the plaintiff, being Rabalovlev, did he prove that Sotheby's aided and abetted fraud? And it was just a very simple no on each charge. So it's like the case and the claim ended there. 
there was four works in question. If there had been any yes questions that it would have been, okay, is he entitled to damages? How much is he entitled to? And it's like everything stopped with that first question. Did he prove that they aided and abetted fraud? And they said no on each of the four paintings that were under consideration. Right. And as you sort of mentioned, like it maybe wasn't the most surprising outcome, but this court case was between the auction house and Rybolovlev is the final scene of a long list of court cases in which Sotheby's is actually like not the main character, but a supporting character. And the main characters are the Swiss art dealer, Yves Bouvier, and the Russian businessman, Rybolovlev, as you've mentioned. And this is something that spans decades. And it's something that you've been covering for many years. So can you explain the basics of that dispute that I think got resolved in December? Is that right? Yeah. And I'll start by saying that it's really an unusual situation bordering on bizarre because the dispute was, <laughs> I mean, I'm being honest, it was between these two gentlemen and Rabalovlev was accusing Yves Bouvier of overcharging him. This whole dispute gets into a question of, was he allowed to charge whatever uptick in prices that he wanted? Or did he have a contract with him where he was held to like a cap, which would be 2% commission on a sale? So that was their whole dispute. It's like, was it fraud or was Bouvier just charging whatever he wanted? And in some cases, you know, as I've covered in detail, the, the upcharge was massive. Like he bought a painting for 83 million, then he turned around and sold to Rabavlev for 127 million. And the whole time he pretended he was negotiating with these tough sellers. And meanwhile, there was no negotiation. He was just making up numbers. So Rabavlev wanted to get back at him and wanted to go after him for fraud. And the way that that played out was in a number of different countries. He tried to pursue him in Switzerland, in Monaco, in Singapore. There was always some reason why there might be some legal recourse for Rabalovlev. And he kind of like pulled out all the firepower and did everything in his power to try to go after him. At some point in the middle of their feud, he also brought Sotheby's in because he said, oh, Sotheby's was involved in all these private sales. So I'm going to hold them accountable too. The thing that I find kind of so strange is that right before this big trial was supposed to start January 8th, all of a sudden he settled with Bouvier and it was like on undisclosed terms. So I don't think that they're ever going to be friends again. I think Bouvier was still liable for some court costs, but his main nemesis, he settled with him, but then he was still pursuing Sotheby's and Sotheby's was the middleman. So even the optics of that is just really kind of bizarre if you present that to a jury. It's truly just such a strange spiraling <laughs> battle that these two have been having. But I think to really kind of make it clear to people and to myself, even like we need to start at the beginning with how these two got to know each other, which I think was back in 2002. Is that right? They got into business. Can you explain how they met and what the business was that they were doing together? Yeah, um, actually, the trial, even though sometimes it was like I say, some things were maybe less dramatic or a little bit anticlimactic. It did reveal new color on even cases that I had written about numerous times. So Rabalovlev relayed how he had bought a mansion in Switzerland, I believe it was Geneva. And I guess the person who lived there before him had been a big collector because the house looked like it was outfitted for spotlights and places to hang art. And so he wanted to try to start collecting art. And he met Bouvier through a mutual friend. And Bouvier said, you know, oh, he owns these free ports, these storage warehouses in Switzerland. And he was like, I have access to art. I have access to collectors and I can help you. And so 
they said the first deal that they did was for a Marc Chagall painting and Rebavla was happy with that. He also bought a Van Gogh landscape. I don't know how much he truly loved, loved, loved the art because I know he kept a lot of it in storage, but he was definitely relying on Bouvier's kind of art savviness and his knowledge of what would be a good artwork and his access to it. And so that's how their relationship took off. And so just to make it clear, Bouvier, he's an art dealer. Is he an art advisor? He's also been called a Freeport King. Like, what is his role in this? That's a great question, because that actually goes to the heart of what their dispute was about. So the Freeport is a kind of a tax-free zone in Switzerland where, say that you bought something in New York and you're a millionaire, you have houses all around the world, you're not sure where you're going to store it. You can keep it in the Freeport because that is like a kind of tax-free zone until you decide what you're going to do with it. Then you do have to pay a tax on it. So Bouvier, in that sense, he wore many hats. He ran the Freeport. And the real question of the dispute and what he might have been liable for with Rabalovlev, it hinges on whether he was an agent or an advisor. I'm sure that when Rabalovlev was having him buy artworks for him, he figured, oh, he's my agent. He's working for me. He's on my side. So it's like he had the understanding that he had a 2% commission. But later on, when all this information about these massive upcharges that Rabalovlev considers unfair emerged, then Bouvier like said flat out, I'm not an advisor. I'm a dealer. I'm in this for the profit and I can charge whatever I want. So that was his story. And a lot of the cases then kind of delved into like, well, was he an agent or was he an advisor? So that's an excellent question because it's really the heart of their matter and their dispute. Sounds like some key information was lost in translation. I read that Rabalovlev, you know, he's a Russian businessman. He made a lot of money after the fall of the Soviet Union, but speaks mostly Russian. And I think in the courtroom in January, he was also speaking through a translator. And so, you know, (laughs) Bouvier also being French, I mean, sounds like some key information maybe got lost in the mix there. But regardless, they became friends of sort and Bouvier helped him build this huge collection. How much was it worth and how many artworks did they buy together? It was 38 deals overall. If there was more than that, then they weren't part of the whole legal fight. But what came up over and over again was that there was 38 individual art deals. The whole volume of those transactions were $2 billion. And the accusation was that Rubalovlev viewed that Bouvier overcharged him by $1 billion. So like exactly 50% of all their business together, he said, was complete fraud and upcharging. It is interesting that you brought up the languages because a lot of the questions during testimony focused on who was at what meeting, what language was spoken, and who translated. There was a funny anecdote. I mean, it wasn't funny for Rybalovlev, but he was actually telling a story about being on St. Bart's, which is where he first discovered the alleged fraud that Bouvier had. And um, they were asking, how did he start talking to this advisor? Because the advisor didn't speak Russian and Rybalovlev didn't speak English. And then he's like, oh, you know, my girlfriend at the time, she spoke English, so she was translating. And then it's like, oh, was she going to testify? Was she going to be part of it? And many times I think that lawyers tried to emphasize what language was spoken and who was translating it in an effort to show that maybe there were gaps in communication when it served their case. Yeah, I want to get to this advisor, Sandy Heller, in a sec, because that, of course, was a huge catalyst for everything kind of devolving between Rabalovlev and Bouvier. 
But before that, we would be remiss not to talk about the big ticket item that changed hands between these two guys, which was none other than Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi. Right. How did Bouvier get his hands on this work and how did he end up selling it off to Rybalovlev? Yeah, he was dealing a lot with Sotheby's and another key executive in a lot of this and, and involved in a lot of testimony is Samuel Vallette. And Bouvier had a really good relationship with him and they were in touch around the time that these three dealers came across the Salvatore Mundi, the Leonardo da Vinci at an auction house in, uh, I believe it was in New Orleans. And they got it for under $10,000. They had a hunch about what it was. And then they spent years restoring it and cleaning it up. So this was a long time happening. I believe that it was when they finally decided, yeah, they were going to sell it. And there was three of them all together, including one who was like an investor. That's when they started talking to Sotheby's and then Sotheby's person, Sam Vallette, had the relationship with Bouvier. So that was like on the Bouvier side, how he sourced the Salvatore Monday. Okay. Which later was sold at Christie's for $450 million, becoming one of the most expensive lots to ever go up to auction. Yeah. And I think we should get to that in a second because, you know, it speaks a lot to maybe the personal stakes that Rebolovlev had in this pursuit of Bouvier throughout many courtrooms in the world. But let's stick with this moment where like the plot really thickens when they're having lunch, as you said, at St. Bart's. So this art dealer, Sandy Heller, is that right? He was having lunch with Rebolovlev and Rebolovlev through his girlfriend, as I've just learned, found out some pretty... <laughs> his girlfriend at da- the time. <laughs> his girlfriend at the time found out some pretty damning information about yeah. Bouvier. What happened there? So what happened after Bouvier sourced this Da Vinci with Sotheby's, he got it for $83 million. That was another thing he didn't represent to Rabalovlev, like, I'm buying this and I'm reselling it to you. It's like he pretended mm-hmm. that he was this middleman negotiating. So he got the Da Vinci for $83 million, and then he turned around and sold it to Rabalovlev for $127 million, which is obviously a massive upcharge of $40 million. And it was only a matter of days that Bouvier acquired it and then turned around and flipped it to him. Then... In 2017, Rybalovlev took the Da Vinci to Christie's and had Christie's auction it for him. And the price on that was $450 million. So it's really hard for people to say, wow, you were defrauded when you turned around and sold something for more than $300 million that you paid for it. You know, everybody knows that there is commissions and there is premiums when you sell something at auction. That's not pure profit, but it's very, very hard to ignore the difference between 127 million and 450 million. Right, within the space of a few years as well. And it's hard to get the empathy of a jury, maybe, with yeah. those kinds of numbers. And Kate, one thing that I want to emphasize, because I do think that this was key, there was efforts by Rebalovlev's lawyers to really kind of keep a lid on that price. They were instructed by the judge not to read about it. So there was a limit on how many times or to the extent that that 450 million could be brought up. So That is another part of the case that strikes me as really bizarre. That key piece of information was very much limited. It was not really allowed to be discussed at trial. Hmm. So going back in time a bit to when this all started to fall apart, this was in 2014 was like a sort of turning point, right? Where, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned earlier, Rabalovlev met 
with this art advisor from New York, Sandy Heller, when they were both on St. Bart's. Mm -hmm. And that's when Rabolovlev found out through his then girlfriend, who was, as I've just learned, translating, <laughs> that maybe Bouvier wasn't giving him such great deals. Right. And so what happened was Sandy Heller is an agent for Steve Cohen, another mega collector, also owner of the New York Mets. So his name was mentioned at trial. And it was funny that people were asking, is that the same guy that owns the New York Mets? And so Sandy was on St. Bart's having lunch and it was New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. And a friend brought him along to a lunch with Rabolovlev. And Sandy knew that Rabolovlev was a major collector. And so they started to talk with the help of their translator. And Sandy had represented Steve Cohen on a deal for a Medigliani reclining nude. And as far as they knew, they sold it to Bouvier for 90 million and Rabolovlev's price was 118 million. And he learned that at the lunch. So that was his first shock. And he said that he turned so pale that everybody at the table thought he was having a heart attack. He was just like in complete shock of what he paid. He testified about this. He was distraught. He got up from the table and he knew he wanted to make a phone call to a friend, but then he thought, oh, maybe the friend might be in on it. So that was the beginning of the end of their relationship. That was when he started going back and unraveling all the deals and finding out this big gap between what he paid and what he was told was his sale price. Right. And so obviously that's a ton of money, but he's also a billionaire. So mm -hmm. it seems to me that there is also something else in the mix. Like these guys were friends, right? Like this right. is also about a broken trust, hurt ego and hurt feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he mentioned a number of times like that Bouvier had come to his birthday party and there was one moment that really kind of surprised me. And I think that the courtroom was very transfixed about it after a day and a half of testimony. And I'm sure it was emotional. Rabolovlev's lawyer got up to ask him a couple of, of final questions and he asked him, what was your relationship like? And he said, he was like a member of my family. And it was like, why did you trust him? He said, Pouvier has this charisma. He has this way about him that makes you feel like you trust him. I'm not a person who trusts easily. And at one point he got really emotional. Like, I don't know if he exactly cried, but he paused and his face went kind of red and he kind of put his hand up to his face and like touched his eyes. And I was surprised to see so much emotion and I'm sure it was emotional for him being on the stand talking about all these different ways that he was betrayed by somebody that he thought was his close friend as well as his business associate. Yeah. Bouvier has a very different comment about their relationship, right? Like I was reading in some coverage that he said, oh, we didn't speak for more than a few minutes on a chairlift, which sort of adds insult to injury, probably for Rabolovlev. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've never met Bouvier in person, but he was in that movie, The Last Leonardo. And I was surprised at how kind of frank he was. He kind of would like shrug and say, yeah, I did that. I charged him. I had a right to do that. And so whatever betrayal Rabolovlev was feeling, like Bouvier clearly had a different view of their relationship. In consequence to this meeting on St. Bart's, Rabolovlev then pursued him in a bunch of courtrooms. We won't have time to get to all of these court cases because they were truly so many. And there's like scores of articles about this on Artnet. But he pursued him in Singapore, Hong Kong, Monaco, Geneva, and also Paris. 
Can you sort of summarize like this whirlwind of litigation that was going on in a few highlights? Yeah. And one interesting thing is that meeting in St. Bart's that woke Rabalov up to the alleged fraud happened at the end of 2014. I remember in early 2015, myself and one of my ArtNet colleagues, we were sitting there, you know, at our desks and this press release rolled in and it was a press release about Bouvier being arrested for this alleged fraud. And it looked like Rabalovlev's side had put out this press release and we were just like, what is this? Like, who are these people? Like this person took to like making a statement in the press about a fraud that happened to him. And it's like, he's a billionaire, but he's not like an official body or like enforcement authority. And we were like, what is going on here? And that was the start of it. So that was 2015. It went on and on and on for years. There was detainment in a number of different countries. And every time you turned around, it was like pulling another lever of like, oh, he's pursuing him in a Singapore court or like he's arrested in Monaco, but then they don't have anything to hold him on. So he's released. And in the middle of the proceedings in Monaco, then it emerged in the papers in Monaco, they were calling it Monaco Gate, that Rabalovlev not only owns a football, a soccer team there, he was friendly with some of the royals. I've heard that he was friendly with Prince Albert. And also text messages showed that he had given officials like ski trips to these exotic locations in exchange for then pursuing Bouvier with law enforcement. And so that was dubbed Monaco Gate. Charges in that are still pending. I know Rabalovlev spoke people say alleged bribery. But that was another aspect of the pursuit of Bouvier in many just different jurisdictions. Right. So there was litigations flying in both directions. Right. In that case. And many accusations. You know, I wrote about this at one point that Picasso's stepdaughter, Catherine Houghton Blay, said that paintings that she had kept in a freeport had been stolen. And then there was proceedings in a Paris court. And then they kind of like, went away and the accusation disappeared. So I think that there was mudslinging on both sides. And sometimes it was really hard to know what was really happening with charges cropping up and then just like going away. Right. Yeah. Some of them are truly bizarre. Like it came to light at one point that Rabalovlev had some involvement in Trump's Palm Beach properties. And then it came to light that he was quietly backing Top Gun and some other Hollywood films. Did this have anything to do with the ongoing litigation or was this, in your opinion, like part of a wider smear campaign? I understand somebody who has that high of a net worth might have their hands in different business realms and different real estate. But the Palm Beach thing was pretty bizarre, too. Like (laughs) speaking about overpaying, you know, he overpaid for all of this art. He paid $95 million for this oceanfront property that Trump had owned. And Trump paid $41 million for it just four years before that. So I don't know why Rubalov paid double the money. And then he never even set foot on the property. Like according to the real estate records that I saw, he carved it up into three parcels and wound up selling those parcels off. And he made some kind of profit, like $18 million. But they say that they never met, but it's like, how did Rabalovlev become aware that Trump had oceanfront property in Palm Beach for sale? And why would he buy it and never set foot in it? I mean, like an investment is an investment, but those names are very notable on a real estate deal in Florida. And then the Hollywood angle, what happened there? Yeah, it was actually just the start of um, January where an executive who had worked at New Republic Pictures, he filed a lawsuit 
and said that Rebalva had been the backer of some of Hollywood's biggest blockbuster films in the past few years. One of them was um, Top Gun. Again, it was sort of like tangential that it came out. I believe his name is Bradley Fisher. He was suing New Republic for $15 million for a breach of contract. But in the course of that, he brought Rebalovlev into the suit by mentioning that he was the secret backer of a lot of films. And he even brought into it the Russia-Ukraine war because he said that when the war started, Rebalovlev, who was a silent partner in the films that he backed, began to withdraw business operations. And that then caused Bradley to be let go or have his contract terminated. His case was that it was because of the war that Rebalvlo was backing out of promise deals because of the optics of a Russian being in business in Hollywood. I don't know what's happening with that case. The lawyers on it have not spoken to me. It's all very secretive. And even though it was first filed in January 2023, I haven't seen any updates and none of the lawyers will respond to requests on that one. Right. Well, you know, I'm asking about these two, you know, as you say, slightly tangential things, because it brings up this point of the fact that billionaires and millionaires often have a vested interest in staying out of the limelight. And Rabalovlev took a significant amount of risk by really exposing himself through all of these trials. And actually, I believe that in one of your reports, the judge actually warned the parties about this, like to avoid trial and settle out of court, saying it would be, you know, quote, expensive, risky and potentially embarrassing. Yeah. So it's just quite surprising this went this far. Yeah, it really is. And I mentioned before, there was a lot of things that I already knew, but things that emerged in the trial were just juicy and pulling back a veil on the art world about high stakes things that happened. Like there was a point where I guess Revolve Lev's lawyers, they kept trying to like hammer on certain things that they thought were incriminating. Like there was a dispute between two executives at Sotheby's over a commission. And one of them said that Sam Vallette was like running things like the Wild West and Revolve Lev's lawyers, they said, oh, that just means like he was out of control running around. And then Sotheby's lawyers were like, no, it was actually just a dispute over commissions. You know, I mentioned to you how the price of the Da Vinci, like mentions of that were limited. I think that in the beginning, Rabalovla was casting such a wide net for Sotheby's about their discovery and producing emails, you know, like producing evidence. And along the way, the judge who, as you point out, did warn them about a risky, expensive and at times embarrassing trial also really limited the scope of what could be decided or talked about at trial. So originally, Rabalova wanted to talk about many more works that Sotheby's had brokered transactions for. In the end, it was limited to the four that were discussed, which was a René Magritte, Domain of Arnheim, which is like a mountainscape, the Gust of Klim, Water Serpents, Leonardo da Vinci, Salvatore Mundi, and Amadeo Medigliani was a limestone sculpture called Tet. So those were the four works that were at issue that were, you know, done to death about the emails, the sourcing, what Bouvier paid for them, what Sotheby's did or didn't do to help value them. Those were the four main focuses of the trial. Right. So can we get into one of the works and exactly like what kinds of emails were flying back and forth? And from what I understand from the reporting, there was a tedious amount of emails that people were having to sift through. Oh, yeah. More than once, the judge, Jesse Furman, urged the lawyers to cut back or shorten their testimony. It was like the same emails over and over again, where, for instance, Sam Vallette wrote to the head of old masters, Alexander Bell, who also had testified at trial. And it was just this discussion of like, 
what is the painting worth? Is it 80 million? Should we say 90 million or 95? Like at one point, Sam Vallette said that he felt like 95 million was a weird number because it wasn't a hundred and it wasn't 90. And it was like the emails went back and forth about what could be fair market value in terms of like an insurance replacement or what would be the value if it was insured for replacement. Like it's just all these different factors that go into valuing an artwork were just discussed ad nauseum. It was like, do you see this email? Do you recognize this email? What were you thinking when you said it was worth 90 million? Was this person pressuring you to say it was worth more? And, you know, as I mentioned before, we know that it eventually sold for 450 million. So in a way it's a moot point, right? If it's worth almost half a billion dollars, what's wrong with a hundred million? So it's like just this constant back and forth about what was the mindset at the time? Like, were you valuing it because you felt pressured to say it was worth more? And so a lot of the emails that maybe at the time were innocuous, like in the course of business type of discussion about valuations and major clients were then really thrust into the spotlight and parsed over and over again about the meaning and the intention. And that was also why you saw a string of really high profile Sotheby's executives testifying. So it was Samuel Vallette was on the stand for about five days. The former CEO of Sotheby's, Bill Ruprecht, testified. The former COO, Bruno Vinciguerra, they're not even at Sotheby's anymore. And they were brought in to testify and go over and over the meaning of what you know, emails and numbers and communications, what was really the meaning behind them. Right. And Samuel Letts, he's Sotheby's senior vice president, vice chairman and head of private sales for Europe, Middle East and Africa. That's so correct. he's got yep. a major position. Yeah. You know, I'm curious as a journalist who covers auction houses and also, you know, in your coverage tries to sort of pull the wool away from shady business dealings. Were there any big revelations from sifting through all these emails about how Sotheby's and other auction houses may be doing business? A lot of kind of discussion internally about knowing that these people are major clients. Like a lot of the plaintiff, Rabal Love's lawyers, questions to Sam Vallette were completely focused on, you know, the whole time you were doing business with Bouvier, you knew that Rabal of Love was his ultimate buyer. Like they even got into this discussion about the French addressing somebody like informally versus formally, and that some of the emails that Vallette wrote to Bouvier had the formal address on them so that he must have known they were being seen by somebody else. And some of the trains of questioning were very unusual to me. And it seemed like they just kept trying to find this like gotcha moment that was never happening. And, you know, I wrote this in my story. I thought Sam Vallette did wonderful on the stand. He was on there for days on end and being asked detailed questions over and over. And he came across like somebody who didn't have anything to hide. He was very forthright. He'd be asked a question and he would give kind of an elaborate answer. Like at one point, I think the Revolve Loves lawyer made a joke about that because he was trying to get him to just be yes or no. And instead, Sam would just be like, oh, you know, this great Rene Magritte painting, talking about like the history of surrealism and what the artist's intent was. So to the extent that Revolve Loves lawyers were really trying to kind of mount this like gotcha type of narrative and defense, I just felt like it wasn't landing. I was there day after day and I had read a lot of the things in the lawsuit that I was sort of like, oh, this maybe like looks questionable or this might be kind of cast doubt on Sotheby's narrative and Sam Vallette's narrative that he just was selling to Bouvier in good faith. But at the trial, and lawyers have told me this, you never really know how it's going to go with a witness. You never know how they're going to come across or how it's going to land. And 
you know, for what I observed and I was there with other reporters days on end, like Sam and a lot of the Sotheby's executives kind of just came across like they were just doing their job. Like it's not easy to sell seven and eight figure paintings. And there was a lot of discussion about value and cultivation of clients. And I think they came out looking pretty good. I don't suppose it's that odd for an auction house to know that there's a secondary client somewhere and not ask who that person is at any point, right? Right. They're in the business of private sales and Bouvier was a great client for them and they don't deny that. But at many times, it's sort of like was suggested from the plaintiff from Revalvo's side that Bouvier was such a big client that you would have done anything to satisfy him. Like you just didn't want to piss him off, right? And so... That was like their line of questioning. And in a way, it's sort of like Sotheby's is like, yeah, he was a great client. Of course, we didn't want to piss him off. Like they're just answering the question. It's optics. It's like something could be portrayed as looking dubious. But in the end, it's like, no, of course, we're going to keep a very rich billionaire client happy. Yeah, I guess the business of selling art is like an art form in and of itself. But just to pan out for a moment, because, you know, the Sotheby's case is just one piece of a puzzle that's really about Rebolovlev and Bouvier's ongoing dispute. I want to just take a second to sort of look at that dynamic. Brokering deals is a common practice in the art industry. But I think what this whole story shows is that like a lot of it relies on handshakes and trust between, you know, dealers, advisors and auction house experts that are, you know, all at different points playing different kinds of middlemen. Yeah. This pipeline really feels like it's ripe for abuse. And I think there also has been a lot of litigation coming forward in recent years to that effect. Why is that the case? That was also discussed a lot at the trial when Sotheby's had Rebalvlev on the stand. They went through his whole history and his history as a successful businessman. He apparently, I don't think I knew this before, he had a medical degree as a doctor when he was still living in Russia. And then he made a lot of money in the fertilizer business. And they, they hammered home how he was a sophisticated businessman. So why was he never double checking the things that Bouvier was coming to him and representing? Like they showed emails where Bouvier would say, Hey, I'm negotiating really hard with this seller. I got them down to 90 million or something like that. And meanwhile, he had already gotten a work from them for like $10 million less. And that really was a key part of Sotheby's argument was that Rabalvlev, who's this sophisticated businessman, he never did due diligence. Whatever Bouvier told him, was what he believed and what he paid. And there was also another thing that they really hammered home on. They questioned Rabalovlev's main art guy, this guy, Mikhail Sazanov. There was never contracts. There was never writing about these major, major deals. And they just took Bouvier's word for like, whatever he said, like the seller wants 90 million, I can't get them any lower. And then they would like pay it. And there was no seller. Like he was just getting the work. He was acting like he was negotiating with somebody, but there was nobody on the other end of those negotiations. And they never double checked that. That has been said about the art world. That has happened in numerous other cases where there's been fraud and lawsuits where it's unbelievable that people paying millions of dollars for a piece of art don't ask for like a title search. Like nobody would buy a house without doing an insurance title search, but People (laughs) agree to buy a half of a painting that's like in a Freeport that they've never seen. So it's like, clearly it's very problematic. I mean, I don't know anybody that wouldn't want to maybe approach art deals with more care after seeing the way that Bouvier operated and what happened to Rabalovlev. In the end, after all of these years, and I guess this is really in all likelihood the final chapter, was the whole ordeal embarrassing or 
Are there some actual important takeaways from this whole tale? I think what it underscores is that access is such a big part of the art world. That's why many advisors do it. A thriving business is because maybe you're a billionaire who doesn't know a lot about art and you want to own some valuable pieces. You need knowledge and you need access. So that's where the reliance on an advisor comes in. But having all these things out in public, going into this, Rebalvlov had to know that it would be potentially embarrassing, but also embarrassing to just admit all these things in court cases over the years. Like there was always these crazy maneuvers going on where like he'd file something in Switzerland and then it would move the lever in New York where it would compel evidence. Like I was tracking that all this time. And it's like, in order to pursue or get justice for what he perceives as being defrauded, he had to reveal a lot. He had to disclose a lot about his financial information, his dealings. He revealed a lot of his personal life by describing this lunch where he went pale and was in shock. So it's like, I can't imagine that it was a surprise for him to have to reveal these things. And if they were embarrassing, I think he had to have known that going in, even when he started pursuing all these legal efforts against Bouvier and Sotheby's. Well, I guess you must feel a slight feeling of relief that you won't be reporting on this anymore, or is it a little bit bittersweet? (laughs) The trial was definitely interesting. And it's like, even though it was a big investment, you sort of didn't want to miss anything because you didn't know what might come out in testimony. And it also, it moved in ways that were unpredictable. Like, you know, I mentioned the whole thing spanned about three weeks, but even on day one, they had this huge jury pool of like 70 people. And I'm thinking this is going to take forever for them to pick a jury because they need to have somebody who's not biased and they're going to ask all these questions. And it's like, when we came back from lunch, they had a 10 member jury and opening arguments started and it was like off to the races. So yeah, I am a little bit relieved that it's over, but it was also really interesting to have a front row seat to like kind of the actual trial and testimony after what what is it? How many years is that? Eight years of covering it. Like like I said, from uh, early 2015, when we got the first bizarre press release about the arrest and pursuing Bouvier right up until this trial against Sotheby's. Yeah, I'll be curious to see if it really causes any major changes in how people do business. So it'll be interesting to see any future reporting that you do about the highly opaque business of art dealing. You know what, Kate, that's such a great question for Sotheby's, like in light of this, and obviously they're happy that they won. We had to comment and everything in the story. They're relieved that this ordeal is over and it could have been very damaging to their business. Sam is still employed there. He still has a very senior role. I'd be curious to know if it was going to spur any changes about how they communicate about clients or like what their responsibilities are when they're brokering a private sale. I mean, they did a good job of defending their activities, but clearly they don't want something like this to happen again. So I would be curious what kind of internal discussions or changes in policy it may have prompted. Yeah, we should send them an email right now, actually. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's been uh, really fascinating to hear this play-by-play. So thank you so much for your time today, Eileen. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Carolyn Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.